Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast, downloaded over half a million times in over 145 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 207 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. In this week's episode, we talk about the three capes track, expectations versus reality. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Now, this is the third and final podcast in this series of three on the Tasmanian Three Capes track. In this episode, we compare our pre-trip expectations to the reality of the journey and, based on our experience, make recommendations as how to get the best out of this trip. We recommend that as you listen to this episode, you follow along on the written review to have a look at the images and the resources that are available. We hope you enjoy. First up, normally we leave this to the end, but from my perspective, the Three Capes track in Tasmania was a real surprise to us. We expected to enjoy it, probably not as much as we actually ended up doing. Previously, my attitude has always been that there's too many hiking trails around to repeat a trail a second time. And the exception for me has been the Larapenta Trail, which I want to go back and do a second time. But coming away from this trip, I've come away with the same opinion that I'd like to go back and do the Three Capes track again. It was just such a good track and we had such a good time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It it was lots of things um, that I think I wasn't expecting and, you know, we'll talk about those um, in a few minutes. But it is a really, really great uh, experience. It's a great track and it has so much to offer everyone. So we're going to go through and talk about what our expectations were before the trip, having never set foot on the trail before, and how we actually found the trip now we've done it. Now, first up, let's talk about track fees. As a government-constructed and government-run track, this is, I think, is the dearest track in Australia at $495 per adult. And even uh, children three years old to 17 or concession card holders are still $396 per person at the time of this podcast. So it's not a cheap track. I've always been aware of the pricing of this track, and I've certainly talked to a number of people who said, oh, no, it's too expensive, you know, it's not going to be worth it. But I suppose the consideration here is the Tasmanian government spent approximately $25 million on building and, and constructing this trail, And when you actually stay in the huts and you see what's on offer and what's provided as part of this trip, it really is value for money. Yeah, I I think there's something else a bit more um, fundamental here because the track is full up, you know, all the time. So the judgment about value for money is being made by those who are paying the money and coming away with an experience and you know, coming away with a positive view. So 
I think um, I don't think it's about repaying the government for the investment. I think it's about appreciating, you know, what what the market will bear, and um, you know, like anything, this is a commercial venture. So I think uh, one thing that you tend not to realise with this trip is you're not just paying track fees. What you're paying for is a boat ride from Port Arthur through to the uh, uh, the trailhead at Denman's Beach, and it's not just a boat ride across the bay. You're actually yeah, it would be a pretty short <laughs> boat ride if they just did that, but you get a tour. You know? Yeah, we we spent basically an hour from the, from leaving Port Arthur to getting across the bay. It took us an hour because we went all the way along the bay, out into open ocean, along some of the ocean cliffs, had a look around, and then came back. Um, to the trailhead, so and then that took us an hour, and it was a, and it was an enjoyable trip. I think it might have taken a little bit longer if the the, the sea was a bit a uh, bit calmer, a bit more pleasant. But we got a nature uh, session, uh, we got a geology session, uh, we got a climate session. We got all sorts of information out of that. We had a history lesson as well. And and I must admit, I wasn't expecting that. I. Uh, I just didn't think, you know, I just thought, okay, you get on the ferry or the, 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 the I call it a ferry, but it's just a boat. Uh, you get on the boat across the bay and I thought that was the, the, the extent of it. In addition, you get access to Port Arthur and that provides a number of different services. When we got to Port Arthur, we checked in uh, at the ranger's office, which is on the, uh, the bottom floor. Uh, we got our passes uh, we were able to leave our town bag uh, in the, a gear storage room there, so we didn't have to worry about what do we do with our excess luggage or extra luggage. We got access to go and have a look at Port Arthur, uh, and we spent a couple of hours doing that. Uh, and um, we also, as part of this, we get access to Port Arthur for two years. Uh, now, whether I'm necessarily going to go back to, to Port Arthur in the next six to eight months, I don't think so. But two years—that's not unrealistic. So, uh, and you, and it's a, an easy site where you could easily spend the entire day there, uh, or you could, if you had your own vehicle or you're doing a bit of travelling around, you could revisit the site again after you've actually done the hike. Yeah, just on the Port Arthur, the staff at Port Arthur and um, in the um, Three Capes Track office. Um, they're very friendly. Um, you you know you obviously stand out as a hiker. They, they like the hikers and, um, you know, they, they're welcoming and, you know, make the experience. So you're not just another tourist. That's the other thing, I think. Now, I've got a heritage background and I must admit I, um, I, I've known about Port Arthur for years but never actually been there. So it was really a good experience. And, again, we could quite easily go back there and spend another half day there without too much problem. One of the things that um, I was aware of and, and, and is talked about on the Three Capes website is that the, because you're, you're on a, a large peninsula uh, and you're surrounded by ocean on three sides, the climate is very different. Now, the maximum temperatures during summertime, maximum and minimum temperatures uh, are around about 16 to 19 degrees and the wintertime is uh, 10 to 12 degrees. So it's the sort of thing that um, it's not one of those things like the overland track where you're going to get snowed on in the middle of winter. Uh, I mean, even in wintertime on this walk, 
Um, it's cool, but it's not you know not freezing cold like you expect in the uh, the central tablelands of of Tasmania itself. Yeah, but because of because you're so exposed, it it, it is windy. Um, there are sheltered parts, but you know in winter you'd expect you know cold winds, um, and you'd expect winds all year round, and we certainly got winds, um, and you'd expect rain all year round. The other thing that uh, I, I didn't really realise in, in this, yes, I realised it was going to be a coastal environment, but I, I had an expectation that it was going to look like Tasmania and, you know, looking like... <laughs> I don't know what that means. Well, looking like, the, say, the overland track did, you know, that sort of um, environment and vegetation. And while we had some areas of that, uh, it very much was a coastal area. Uh, and I made the comment in some of our uh, posts in a, pre- in a previous podcast that it's a bit like walking through um, coastal New South Wales. It is, but it isn't. It's but got, it's better. Yeah, well, it, it's got well, no ticks is probably a good thing. Isn't it? Um, it's got its own unique character that you know you think, okay, this is sort of New South Wales, but not quite. But it was a really nice environment to walk through. Yeah, um, it was, and um, you know, quite. Quite pleasant, and you know, even if you saw nothing along the way, um, there were there were lots of sections that were just a really nice part of the world to hike through. Now, the next thing that I misinterpreted on this walk, uh, and again, this is through, I, I just had an expectation that because we were walking along cliff tops, for some reason, I expected this walk to be relatively flattish. Um, <laughs> it's Tasmania. It's Tasmania. It is Tasmania. I don't think Tasmania does flat very well. If you're following along and looking at the write-up of this trail at the same time, we've got a um, a, a, a little uh, uh, image showing the change in altitude over the four days. And, you know, certainly the highest peak is under 600 metres, but really you're starting off, you're progressively making your way upwards. You've got a couple of tall peaks uh, on the second day. You've got a really tall peak on the last day on the trail and then you start making your way down. But but it is not a flat trail. Now, my comment here was this trail has been designed to be walked in one direction. Um, it's not like the overland track where if you do it off-season, you can work, walk in both directions. This one, you start at uh, Denman's Cove and you finish at Fortescue Bay, and that's the way this walk is run year-round. They've designed and built the trail in that way. So when we climbed up Arthur's Peak in the second day, uh, it was a series of switchbacks and steps. On the first day from leaving the beach to heading up to Surveyor Hut, we had a series of steps, and there were a lot of steps that just went up and up and up. Yeah, I didn't expect as many steps, and I think I've discovered that in Tassie you you, you don't sort of switch back your way up a mountain. You actually just go up and then you go down um, and you use steps, and they were rock steps, which, you know, are pretty tough given that they're usually um, uneven, different heights and so on. Uh, there were stone steps, which is, you know, there were flights of stone steps that have been created by, you know, uh, a stonemason and they're just works of art in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then there are steps that are uh, essentially bounded by timber with some dirt or granite um, infill. So lots of steps, lots of different types of steps. Um, but I think also it didn't 
Once you got into it, it didn't seem as tough on your feet as well. So while the steps were tough on your knees and tough tough on your legs, um, you know, it was pretty good for your feet. Now, going back to the trailhead on this track, um, we were dropped off by the boat uh, and it was a bit funny in some respects. Because it was a really low tide, they couldn't get as close to the beach as they normally do. So they suggested we take our shoes and socks off because we had to wade through about 40 centimetres of water for probably around about 40 metres or so just to get onto the beach. So we ended up sitting there just um, letting our feet dry before and brushing the sand off before we actually started walking. Uh, the boat boat itself is pretty good. The, the thing that really sort of stuck with me here was – there really are no trail markers on this track. You know, if you think of just about any other track or trail you do that's multiple days, they tend to have little arrows or little directional signs saying, turn here, go here. Uh, there are a few on this track, uh, but there's really no directional signage. And there's probably a good reason for that is it's it's if you get lost on this track, you're walking with your eyes closed, basically. It's a clearly defined track. Well, I think you're bush bashing. <laughs> if, if, if you can't find the track, then yeah. you're trying to go cross country. Yeah, so it's 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 the sort of track where you don't need to know how to navigate. I had the what used to be called the Gut Hook app, which is now called Far Out, uh, and the only time I ever got got it out to have a look at it was more about seeing where the what the change in altitude was rather than for a navigation perspective. Um, there are a few signs along there, mainly things like cliff warning signs. Uh, uh, on day three, we had some directional signs, uh, but in most cases, it was more about um, the artwork along the trail rather than the signage. And don't forget the helicopter warning signs, uh, you know, stop here. If you hear a helicopter, it's like, uh, yeah. It's in some of those places, I wasn't sure where the helicopter was going to go. But we well, think possibly this is just a bit of a hangover from construction, or whether they need to do maintenance, they'll actually go through and, uh, uh, you know, drop a helicopter in and, and, and warn people just in case. Or drop gear in. Drop right. gear in, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing with this track, they're, they're, one of the reasons for so much boardwalk is trying to prevent the spread of root rot in some areas. So there are a couple of uh, foot cleaning stations, and we've got show images of that being used in the boot, uh, boot cleaning. Yeah, boot cleaning stations, uh, just to disinfect uh, anything in the bottom of your feet or, uh, or bottom of your your shoe your shoes. Um, and yeah, fairly easy to get used to. Something I haven't seen since I hiked the Bibbulmun Track in Western Australia. Talking about things like wildlife uh, or flora and fauna, wildlife was a bit of a surprise on this one. You know, there wasn't what I'd consider to be a lot of wildlife. There was some there, but I've certainly done trails that have had much more uh, animals roaming around. Uh, but without a doubt, I saw more echidnas on this track than, than I think just about every other track that I've ever done. Ever. And they're so cute. And they're these, you know, really sort of light brown, blondie colour, very unusual, and just completely unfazed by the hikers. So, you know, we didn't have to look hard for these echidnas. They were quite literally on the side of the track doing their thing and didn't take much notice of us. We actually had one on the last day that was 
pretty much on the in the middle of the track. Uh, it, it obviously found a good cache of insects or ants because it was digging away and had about six or seven hikers around it with their cameras and their, their phones taking photos, and it just didn't care. It was just so focused on eating, uh, it just ignored the hikers. Uh, so, yeah, all the echidnas we saw were basically feeding on the edge of the trail or on the trail, uh, and obviously it's a bit easier for them because they don't have to dig through bush. Uh, but, yeah, if you want if you want to see echidnas, this is, I think this is the track for it. We had some uh, Bennett's wallabies were probably the most common uh, of the kangaroo family, uh, and particularly at the third the hut, the third hut where we had a male, a female, and a, and a joey there, and it was quite funny to watch. They uh, they looked like they were sleeping underneath the uh, yeah. uh, the 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 the, uh, the decking, um, and we're standing there on the decking, and and mum comes out and has a look around and and hops off. The joey comes out and then all of a sudden... Makes mum, the weirdest sound. Yeah. Mum comes back and shoes the joey back underneath the decking and then ha- takes a swipe at, at the male. It was all, And I know we're not supposed to associate human emotions to animals, but it was almost like, what are you doing? You're supposed to keep keep control of this thing. So, you, <laughs> yeah, you were in charge <laughs> and you failed. But, yeah, they're cute. Uh, we saw a little potteroo at one stage. Um Nighttime, I saw saw a possum at the base of the trees and a reasonable number of birds. Blue tongue lizard uh, and other people on the track saw uh, tiger snakes as well. But again, we we tended to start a bit earlier and finish a bit earlier than most people, and I think we sort of beat the snakes out onto the the track who were looking at sunning themselves. Yes, I think it was a bit warmer when they were eyeing off the tiger snakes. Plant-wise, again, we weren't in the peak wildflower season, but there was so much there. We came across orchids, uh, lots of banksias. There were things just flowering everywhere. Um, you know, there was enough to keep me happy as a horticulturalist, uh, and you know, I was taking a, quite a lot of photos. So it doesn't seem to matter what time of the year it is. I'm, I'm guessing middle of winter there might not be so much there. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, it's, there was enough to keep people happy and there was enough to go through and see. Accommodation and facilities-wise, there are three huts along the trail. There's Surveyor Hut, which is the first one, uh, Munro Hut, which is the second, and Redacuna, uh, which is the third hut. They're all built around the same sort of design, but they take advantage of the landscape that they're in. Yeah, so the configuration is slightly different in one uh, in, at Surveyor's um the uh, the individual huts are more in a line, um, whereas um, at Redekana they're um, kind of t- two blocks, two blocks of huts, but still connected. So just taking advantage of the different environment to um, make it as attractive as possible, I guess. And I think for us, probably the, our favourite would have been Munro Hut, uh, which was the second day uh, where we stayed. Uh, and I, I think partly because that was on towards the edge of a cliff. Uh, it was well back, but it was towards the edge of a cliff, so you're getting ocean views and there was this nice lookout virtually as soon as you arrived. Yeah, you walked onto a deck um, to make your way into the, the camp and the, the, it was just this amazing view and uh, lots of people just, you know, grabbed a chair or grabbed a seat and just relaxed looking out into the ocean. There's two kitchens at each of the uh, the huts, uh, and um, or in fact, 
Uh, Munro huts slightly different, but you know, with the other huts, there's two little kitchen areas, so people will often congregate to one or the other. Uh, there's tables, there's seating cubes, there's a kitchen area with a gas stove, uh, there's solar lighting, uh, and there's uh, also USB charging points to charge your phone, to charge your uh, uh, camera, whatever it is you need to charge. Now, it, this seems a bit of a luxury, but it's something that's becoming more and more common on tracks these days. And particularly because we still are in a period of during, we still are feeling the impacts of the pandemic where Parks Tasmania wanted us to keep our phones on at all time. So if they needed to contact us, they could do. Uh, but with the USB charging stations there, it meant that uh, uh, you know, we could have fully charged phones all the way through. Having said that, though, I still carried a power bank just to recharge. It just made things a bit more convenient, which means I could charge at night time rather than having to go and collect the phone from the kitchen area. Well, the other thing I noticed was um, charging with the power bank is much faster than plugging it into a wall. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. You know, it's it's pretty powerful. The kitchens also have pellet heaters. Uh, we used that on one of the days where we had a bit of rain. It was a bit cold. Uh, but otherwise, they really are well set out. They're well designed. They look really good. Yeah, and just while we're still talking about the huts and we were talking about the the things that you get, at each of the huts there's a host ranger um, and the host ranger is uh, there to uh, guide, to provide a briefing. Uh, they also do all the cleaning. They've got the good jobs. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're not rocking up and uh, the camp is completely empty, you know, you've got somebody who's a caretaker essentially um, for each of the sites. Sleeping-wise, there are a number of cabins and I think there was nine cabins in each uh, of the locations and they were numbered one to nine. Uh, the cabins varied. The cabin we stayed in was actually uh, cabin number one and that was our allocated cabin for the three huts. So we knew when we turned up to Munro and Redicuna, we were staying in, in Hut 1, which made things really easy. Yeah, and I like that because, I mean, the thing I'm not, not a fan of when um, you're on a trail where everyone's heading in the same direction and uh, you need to stay in hunts is that, you know, it drives this, uh, you know, I've I've got to leave and I've got to get to the next campsite as fast as I possibly can to grab the best posse. Um, so that took the pressure off. You know, we knew that we were in um, hut number one and uh, it slept eight people. Uh, there were only four in it, so Tim and I and another couple. Um, we'd managed to um, organise ourselves um, based on the, the first day and that followed through. So they had one end and we had the other end and... It, it worked out quite well and there was no rushing to, to find the best bunk. Because of the pandemic, they have reduced the numbers. Uh, instead of having 48 people potentially staying there at the huts, uh, they had uh, uh, a maximum of 36. And we were three short on our, our group of people. Uh, one of the, uh, the, the families that were with us was waiting for a family to come across from Western Australia um, and they could get out of West Australia. They were worried about getting back again. <laughs> so they that ended up freeing up three spaces. But um, it was really quite enjoyable. The, the, the bunk rooms are basic. They've got good thick mattresses. They're bunks. 
Um, but, you know, they're, they're protected, they're sheltered, you don't feel like you're freezing to death, um, and you've got good big uh, overhangs outside. So even if it's raining, you're not going to get saturated as you walk outside. Yeah, and there, there are enough benches and uh, enough pegs to hang, you know, gear on both inside and um, outside each of the huts. So, you know, it, it means that you can keep things reasonably tidy. You don't have to have everything on your bunk or under your bunk. The toilets, as is pretty typical in Tasmania, are composting toilets, and they're actually sort of a almost a two-story affair where you walk up the stairs to go to the toilets, uh, and that's because the uh, they take all waste out of the park, uh, and there's a, a series of pods which they remove all the waste from and swap over, uh, and then at some point a helicopter will come in and take these things away. Uh, but the, you know, plenty of toilet facilities uh, with with uh, hand basins and a mirror for for shaving for doing whatever you need to. Um, so they're, they're quite good in that respect. And Munro Hut had two uh, outdoor showers, which were basically uh, tin semicircular sort of affairs uh, that you walked inside. Uh, there was a, a canvas bucket which you lowered and filled up with relatively warm water. Uh, I wouldn't say it's hot, but it was pretty warm. Uh, and just have a slow shower. It might only last five minutes, but it was just nice just to wash all the grime off. I don't think my shower lasted five minutes, Tim. Once you opened that up, it came out. Uh, mine was mine was much slower. So. Oh, yeah. I, t- I did turn it off a little bit. But, yeah, it was very nice uh, to, to wash a bit of the grime off. And I must admit I wasn't necessarily going to do it but got uh, convinced by the enthousi- enthusiasm by another hiker. Um, so uh, off we off we went and I think we were pretty happy we did that. Now, one of the things they do along this trail is there's a, a series of artworks that's spread along the trail. And from what the ranger was saying, this was done by the local indigenous groups uh, and they really are well done. So in most cases, they're artworks, but they're also seating. So we've, we show a, 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 a selection of these in the write-up of this, this trail. Uh, and there's one that... Uh, uh, I'm looking at just at the moment is guess who guess who was here, uh, and it's got a little picture of a wombat on these square cubed sort of shaped uh, seating that looks like wombat poo. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are very obvious seats. Uh, there's one called um, I think it was Cloud City or Cloud Forest Cloud Forest it was, which was almost looked like a series of toadstools, and that's what it was supposed to represent. So there's plenty of uh, Plenty of things to keep you amused and keep you happy as you go. Yeah, and um, we haven't talked about the guidebook. Um, the guidebook has lots of information um, and is intended for you to use as you're walking along. We tended to do um, two or three of these installations and then, uh, you know, at the next one stop and get out the guidebook and uh, have a bit of a read about what we've seen and um, what we're going to see next. So, um it, it is, as, as we keep saying, it's an experience. Um, it's not just about walking. Uh, it's, it's about slowing down. It's about looking around and it's about, you know, taking it all in and reflecting. Okay, so day one for us was a, an introduction to the trail. And, you know, if we stopped at day one, I would have been happy with the experience that we'd had out of that. Day two was a couple of peaks that they really did tire everybody out. Uh, Arthur's Peak uh, and Crescent Mountain were the two 
uh, high points on day two, which provided some excellent views. And day two was about the views, definitely. I mean, the art installations were fantastic, but um, the views were just like nothing you've seen. And then day three was around about Cape Pillar and the Blade. Now, day three, we had apparently uh, Munro Hut uh, has the best sunrise views on the trail. And I got up to go to the bathroom just after four o'clock and it wasn't, it was. Uh, starry and clear skies. Half an hour later, it was raining, so I missed my opportunity to get up and have a look at the uh, uh, the sunrise and take photos from the helipad, which is the recommended area. Uh, but we had the rain continue on and off for uh, at least half the day, uh, and that tended to drop the temperatures a bit. So we put our rain gear on and headed off to Cape Pillar and the Blade. Uh, and one of the things that I was a bit confused about there was I saw all these people coming back the previous day with their full packs and thought, geez, that's a bit weird. Um, but you know, it's not until you realise or you've done the brief with the ranger that you realise there's actually a little hut around about 100 metres down the track where you put your main pack and just carry a small day pack. Yes, and uh, <laughs> that was very much appreciated Um because this is to Cape Pillar, it's an it's an out and back um, walk, um, and you know a, de- a decent um, number of kilometres. Um, but the primary reason um, for that is that you need to get all your gear together and out of the way, um, because this is the crossover point uh, for the track. So, um, like we did uh, on day two. Uh, we arrived um, at Munro and we met um, some hikers who were leaving Munro. So they'd been out to Cape Pillar um, and they were collecting their packs and they were heading off and we were coming into Munro and uh, finishing for the day. So the walk out to uh, uh, day one is four kilometres. Day two is 11 kilometres with a full pack. Day three uh, out to the Blade and... Uh, Cape Pillar is probably only around about four kilometres with a full pack. The rest of the distance is with a day pack. The last day back to Fortescue Bay is 14 kilometres. Again, probably about 11 kilometres of that with a full pack. Uh, And then you've got a a side, the side walk off to Cape Hoy, you do just with a day pack. So you're not having to carry a full pack for huge distances on this. Yeah, and... They've really thought about the the opportunity to drop packs too and where the best opportunity is. And so um, at Munro, being able to put your pack into the, uh, the little shed that's at the campsite and then uh, drop your pack before you go into the walk down and up and down and up and down and up into Cape Hoy, um, is also a really good spot to drop your pack. <laughs> you don't want to take your full pack down there. Now, coming back to day three, day three is um, day one you walk into the Surveyor Hut, day two you're walking to Munro Hut, day three you're going from Munro Hut out to the Cape, back to Munro Hut and then on to Redacuna Hut. So there's a bit of duplication on the walking there. So, so, so it is a good opportunity to drop the pack off. 
as we said, that we had our rain gear on, and it wasn't heavy rain when we were walking, but it was enough that you would have got saturated if you didn't have it on. And as usual, you know, as soon as you take it off, it was going to start raining heavily, so it was probably just as easy to leave it on. And and for me, um, I use the rain jacket as a bit of a windbreak as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, the blade is probably the, the hero image on the website, or when you see this, it's a... Uh, a peak that uh, narrows up almost onto a knife edge up to the top and there's the official stopping point and then you can go right up the top. We opted not to go right to the top because we got up there and we were having 40 kilometre an hour winds. Uh, and it's, and uh, it's uh, you know, it's, it's narrow, steep uh, steps. Uh, it's very exposed. It's on a very narrow... Um, outcrop and uh yeah we just kind of went nah <laughs> yeah i <laughs> uh, got this far love it thank you for going <laughs> having said that though the people that were behind us and probably by around about i'd say almost an hour uh because we did leave just after six o'clock we were up for the sunrise we were shots. up for the sunrise and we we're ready to go in no time so we started walking and had, had breakfast on the trail so we, we, I mean, that's one of the bonuses of getting up early. We had pretty much the whole, we, in fact, we did. We had the whole way out there by ourselves and it was only when we started coming back that we crossed over with everybody else. Uh, but, yeah, the blade was really, really good. Uh, and then we continued on to Cape Pillar, which is, wasn't that far away. It was around, it was about a 40, roughly 40-minute 40 return trip all up. Uh, and we they're, they're really creative in some of the names of these places they have. We uh, Our first lookout was Seal Spa. Um, and again, there was artwork in there, which was supposed to look like lounging seals, but it provided excellent views to Tasman Island, which was just off the coast uh, with the lighthouse and back to the blade. So really good views for that. And that's, uh, I think, the, the cover image for this, uh, this podcast and the, the write-up. Cape Pillar itself, the views are good, but I think Seal Spa was the better option. And the chasm. Yeah, and the chasm, which was, I think, what's the chasm? And you sort of, there's a little detour slightly off track, and it is very short detour. Yeah. And you get quite uh, close to the, the, the sort of right point, and then you go, ah, the chasm. <laughs> yeah. It's just a gap. It's almost like someone's cut a gap through the uh, the rock wall, and there's, there's this chasm dropping down to the ocean a couple of hundred metres below. So yeah. it was pretty good. So, again, spectacular scenery, spectacular geology. Uh, there was one point there where we came across an artwork called uh, Wicked Winds, uh, which looks like a uh, – it was a looks like a, a warp chair, but it's designed to look like the vegetation. Uh, and we got just past that, and um, if I had have lifted my foot, I would have been blown over. This gust of wind just came just out of nowhere – um, and a couple of other people said the same as well. This is obviously the high point in that area. It's where all the wind gets funneled through. Yeah, and it's interesting because a couple of times, I did mention the wind um, earlier, that a couple of times, um, you know, you'd be uh, walking along and uh, you were quite quite comfortable. Uh, you knew the wind was blowing. And then just take one step and you would literally be blown sideways. And then if you took another step, you were back out of that big wind gust. So it was very local um, and very sudden. So um, another reason um, to stay uh, away from the cliff edges. And I think for me what was a bit of a surprise, um, and I think it's probably a, a, a bit of a point of 
discussion within the park service, um, what was a surprise was there were no barriers uh, to stop people from falling off cliffs. Um, so, you know, you were being trusted um, with your own life essentially. Um, so uh, it was a really interesting one and it was nice because it didn't interrupt the views uh, you know, probably the only point at which there was a rail was at Cape Hoy, um, and that was, you know, because we were, the end point was right on the edge of a um, a cliff um, and right on the edge of the drop. So, And Cape Hoy is actually a, a, a single day walk for tourists coming in from Fortescue Bay. Oh, so, that's true, yeah. 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 Now that brings us on to the last day of walking, and that was from, and that was from Redacuna Hut to Fortescue Bay. And I'll step backwards here for a minute. There's two decisions that you really need to make on this walk. On the trip out, you've got a an 11.30 boat or a 2 o'clock boat. Uh, and really it depends on a couple of things. For us as visitors to Tasmania, we uh, needed to get a bus uh, or hire a car, but we, we got a bus down there. Um, we wanted to have the opportunity to have a look around Port Arthur. So by getting the later boat... Uh, we were able to spend time in Port Arthur, have lunch, and then head across. If you're really into swimming, Denman's Beach is a really nice secluded sort of beach to swim at. For me, I'm not into swimming in Tasmania. The water's too cold for me. Uh, But it was a lovely beach, and a number of hikers did take the opportunity. So if you want to go for a swim, take the earlier boat uh, and take, take advantage of that. The opposite applies as well. When you get it with the Fortescue Bay, you need to get a bus back to Port Arthur to then get your connecting point back to Hobart, whether that be a car or another bus. And the bus trip back is part of the trip as well. So for us, we didn't have a choice. We had the 2 o'clock, I think it was, a 2, 2.30 bus, uh, and then there was a 4 o'clock bus. Now, which one you choose is going to be up to you. If you want to sleep in, if you're a slow walker, choose the later bus. For us, we didn't have much of a choice on that, and we would have left early anyway. And we got up and we'd gone, we'd left probably by about six thirty, I think it was. And again, we we were first ones out of the uh, out of the the cabin, and we had the whole trail to ourselves again. So really, for our, that's the second decision point you've got to make on this trail when you're booking. Yeah, and um, what's interesting is that the host ranges give you guidance on the hours it takes to do each day uh you know you know the kilometers but uh, there are key points particularly on the last day um that you know you need to be mindful of getting back so you can get the bus that you'd you've been booked on and you know i think we found that the timings were pretty good the timings were reasonably generous um we obviously did it uh faster because we didn't know that at the time um but you know when they say you've got six and a half to seven hours to do this it'll take you that long you can plan that um and you you know you will comfortably most people will very comfortably uh do it within that time frame so the walk to cape hoy from redacuna was Again, it was a different sort of experience. And the ranger had advised this uh, the day before when she did a briefing that it was almost what you'd class, or at least part of it is what you'd class as typical Tasmania with temperate rainforests. 
So walking up the highest peak of the whole trip, but it didn't feel like that because the way the steps were done, the way the switchbacks were done, um, even though it was the highest peak by a long shot, uh, it just felt like a really comfortable sort of walk and a well-set-out walk. Well, we'd also done a bit of climbing by then. You know, <laughs> We'd probably uh, picked up a bit of height along the way, so we weren't necessarily going from sea level. No, no. Um, once we got towards the top, the uh, uh, or in fact, we got up towards the top and we had some spectacular views along the cliff line. Um, and I think in some respects, this was views back towards Cape Pillar, and because the sun was back out again, I think the views on that day were probably the best of the whole trip, uh, at least from my perspective. And it wasn't something that I was expecting. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think they were all, for me, they were all pretty spectacular. And every time I stopped and looked around, it was like, my goodness, you know, this is just an amazing landscape. And, uh, you know, if, if you're into... Uh, landscape photography, you know, you would have just loved it, absolutely would have loved it. So we got to the uh, the turn point and as Jill said, there was a sign there saying from here to Cape Hoy is a roughly a two-hour trip and you then have a one-hour uh, trip down to Fortescue Bay. Make sure you've got enough time. Um, for us, we had plenty of time. It took us an hour and 40 minutes to get out to Cape Hoy. Uh, I think it probably took us... 40 minutes to get back to Fortescue Bay. So we did it quite comfortably. We had a, quite a lot of time to wait. Uh, and more, more steps down. And more steps down. <laughs> so we dropped off our packs. There's a, Just as you go to the turnoff there, there's a little area on the right which is uh, some seating uh, where you can drop your packs off and just take your day pack out to, uh, uh, out to the Cape itself. There's a warning sign there about the birds and just like on the overland track, uh, the currawongs that are there know how to undo zips and if you leave a pocket open, they will get in there and if there's anything edible, they will find it. Um, and you know, even while we were sitting there uh, doing some social media and putting our pack covers on, there was a currawong watching us and before we'd even fully left the area, it was down on the, the, the ground looking at our packs. So again, it's, uh, it's always a good idea even if it's not going to rain, to put your pack covers on and put your pack upside down so there's a limited access point into the pack itself. The walk out to Cape Hoy is probably the most physically demanding component of the whole trip. Uh, and when we got back, I did a search on the internet that if you're doing this walk from Fortescue Bay out to Cape Hoy, there are 4,500 steps. And when I say steps, it's not steps as in Fitbit tracking your how many steps you're doing, this is physical steps. Lift it, your leg up, yeah, lift yeah. your leg up. <laughs> uh, and you walk out and you've got this bloody steep uh, set of stairs that takes you down the bottom and all I could think was we're going to have to go back up here again. Yeah, yeah. Then you go back up to a not as high an area, then down, then back up again. So there are a lot of steps, but again, the views out from Cape Hoy are pretty good, well worth it. I think it took us uh, all up, the trip, as I said, the trip out to Cape Hoy and back was about an hour and 40. So yep. it, it's a comfortable sort of trip with great views. The walk back, particularly up that last set of steps um, to all you know, back towards where we dropped our pack, it was a, it's ki a killer. It's a killer, it's yeah. A killer. So, yeah, it's, that's the hardest section of the whole track from our perspective. Yeah, and that uh, that's a shared track. So uh, Tim mentioned before that the – uh, those people who are doing 
the walk to Cape Hoy, um, day trippers who are parked at Fortescue Bay, um, they're they're coming up to, and uh, you know they're pretty fresh and uh, they're not carrying anything, so they're moving pretty uh, pretty quickly. Um, but you know it gets it gets quite busy. So another reason why I think it was good for us to to get out early. So basically, after a couple of hours, we, there are no no facilities as far as to be able to purchase lunch at Fortescue Bay. <laughs> I, I think it's a missed opportunity for someone to set up there. There really is. In, they need a coffee van. Yeah, a coffee van would make a fortune out there. Uh, but um, so we had our lunch. Uh, we just sat in the the picnic area for along with most of the other hikers as they turned up, and um, uh, just waited for our bus. Now the bus stop is in front of the ranger's station, so we we'd gone down to see where the bus was, and that's what the ranger told us. And you know we we walked past the sign that said bus stop, but uh, it didn't make sense as we walked in. An easy to locate sort of thing, and the bus trip back to Port Arthur is relatively quick and easy as well. There is one though. I mean, there's a trailhead um, uh, towards the bottom. Well, it's supposed to be at the end of the trail, but but towards the bottom of the trail, as you come into Fortescue Bay, um, great opportunity for some photos. But then you have to walk another kilometre and a half. Well, it says three hundred metres, but gee, it was it no. just seemed like a long way. It's like, are we there yet? Um, so um, yeah, just. Just prepare yourself for that one because you get to the end of, of the trail and you go, yay, great celebration, take a photo and keep walking. Yeah. <laughs> um, and from there we went back to Port Arthur, picked up our bag that we'd left there, uh, grabbed some food and we didn't have a long wait uh, and then we got a bus back to Hobart. So trip over. Now a couple of things that I would mention here, the – Tasmanian Parks website recommend you have a 50-litre pack uh, on this trip. Just about everybody that was on our uh, group had a 65-litre pack, and there could have been a couple of reasons for that. If you've only got one pack and you don't want to go out and buy another one, you'll use what you have. But just about everyone that had a 65-litre pack, the packs were... Filled that pack. Filled well and truly. Now, Um, you know, that's okay if they want to carry all of that and they think it's essential and they want some luxuries and they've made those decisions. But we got the impression that everybody was pretty unhappy with the fact that they had full 65-litre packs and we didn't, you know. (laughs) So we kept getting questions about, you know, uh, how come your packs are so small? It's like, you know, I've got to carry this thing around. It's like, yep. (laughs) <laughs> you might want to think about that next time. Now, from my perspective, I was carrying a or using a 33-litre pack. Now, I would have liked a slightly bigger pack. Uh, I think for me, a 40-litre pack would have done really well uh, or, or 36 to 40 litres. Um, but I carried everything I needed to. I carried food. I carried all my clothing. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been any different. Mm-hmm. The difference may have been if you have a – cheaper and bulkier sleeping bag that will certainly impact and there were some pretty big sleeping bags being carried on that uh, that trip yeah they were uh, they were and i think likewise i think um i could have done with a 40ish liter um backpack so i think that the thing that i'd recommend is um prepare your gear in advance 
work out what it is you really do need. Now, certainly from my perspective, I can get away with a pretty small pack because I've done enough hiking that I know exactly what I use and don't use and what makes me comfortable. You know, I could have carried bottles of wine. I could have carried all sorts of stuff and increased the size of the pack, but I was quite happy with what I had and I didn't didn't starve. Uh, Well, in fact, I was just saying, because it was Christmas, we took some extra goodies and, um, you know, we didn't open some of our Christmas Day goodies until the last day. So um, we had plenty of food, uh, probably way too much food. Um, We didn't have to take any cooking implements or, you know, so no stove or pots or bowls or those sorts of things. So, you know, I think... um, just just bear that in mind and if you don't want to carry the weight, then don't carry the weight. But, yeah, as, as I said, go through, prepare beforehand, look, put everything aside, revisit it again, work out if there's something you're going to use or not. So um, the only thing I think I didn't use was my long johns just in case it got really cold, but pretty much everything else got used on the hike. So, you know, it's up to you. If you want to carry it, that's fine. But as I said, if the Tasmanian Park Service are recommending a 50-litre pack, they tend to be on the conservative side. So, yeah, I think that it just means you need to really think about what it is you're carrying. Yeah, and if you, you know, if you have a bigger pack, you don't have to fill it. No. <laughs> That's the other thing. You can squish it up and, uh, you know, make it as small as you, as you possibly can to fit the gear that you have. You don't have to fill it. Now, the Tasmanian Parks website have a recommended packing list, but uh, both Jill and I, if you go to the write-up, we have links to what we actually carried on that trip, and you can see whether it's something that is going to be helpful to you or not. And who knows, you might need a bigger pack, but really be conscious about choosing what you you take with you. Uh, It'll make the, the whole trip much more enjoyable. While we're talking about packs, I'd suggest getting one of the ultralight Sil nylon day packs, uh, either from Osprey or Cedar Summit. These are things that weigh under 100 grams, fold down to virtually nothing. But it means when you do go out to Cape Pillar and the Blade, you've got something to put your snacks in and your water bottle and your rain gear if need be. Uh, you don't have to carry everything in your in your hands or be wearing it. So it's worth it. Um, it's As I said, it's not going to take up much space or add much weight, but I think it really would help. Yeah, and I think the other thing I would say is that if you're using um, bladders uh, that fit inside your pack, having a a collapsible bottle of some kind that you can fill with water for those day trips, uh, that would be handy too. We improvised a bit and we filled our empty uh, peanut butter jars up with water. Uh, We loaded up on water uh, before we went off and uh, topped up with our peanut butter jars along the way and then came back and reloaded with water when we picked up our packs. Okay, so that was our four-day trip on the Tasmanian-based Three Capes walking track. As I said at the beginning, this this trip over-delivered from my perspective, and, and as I said, it will go on a list of hikes that I want to revisit again at some stage. It really is a good hike. You know, it's 48 kilometres. You know, it's not long in relation to doing multi-day hikes from our perspective. But don't be fooled <laughs> like me. I just thought, 
48 kilometres, what are we going to be doing? Like we can cover 25, 30 in a day. Um, And that's one thing I will mention here is the Tasmanian Park Service don't want you doing that. Uh, Basically, you are staying at each hut in order. Um, so again, they've actually, actually said if you want to do this in one day, it's not something we can we can offer because it just means that you're getting a concentration of people um, rather than spreading them out evenly along the track and, and having a good experience. Well, I think I think it's more about the times they've allocated are quite reasonable times to enjoy um, being there and the opportunity to see what you need to see. So. Um, uh, you, you know, and and there are parts that's pretty tough. You're carrying a full pack and up those. I, I think if I never see another set of stairs again for a little <laughs> while, that'd be very happy. Thank you. So yeah, great trip. Can't recommend it enough. Uh, and I think it's one of the one of those sort of trips that we, from an experiential perspective, we rated this as a five, which is pretty rare for us. Um, it really is a trip that's well worth doing, whether you're a newer hiker or whether you're an experienced hiker. And and just one last, 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 last point for me. Um, the people that we met on this trail were just lovely people. So, you know, very genuine out of the 33 that were heading in the same direction on the day that we were heading. Um, I can honestly say there wasn't anybody that we thought that, you know, was a bit weird or a bit unpleasant or, you know, somebody that you wouldn't want to um, spend a bit of time chatting to. So that was a really nice thing about it as well and, uh, you know, that made the uh, communal living a little bit uh, easier and a little bit more um, pleasant and enjoyable. Does that mean it's us? <laughs> oh, we're the one. with it. I could be. Somebody said that if you... If you if you can't find the, uh, uh, I'll just call them an idiot in the group. Uh, look in the mirror. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't us. <laughs> but yeah, so um, we hope you've enjoyed this series of three podcasts. Uh, and if you're looking at this trail, we hope that it provides a bit of additional information from both the podcasts as well as the the write up to help you plan your trip. That's all for us this week. Bye for now, and bye from me.